0: In 1985, a group of Americans got together and decided that they were going to take a radical view of looking at who Jesus was and really kind of be very, very sceptical about everything that, they wrote in, that was written in the Bible about him. The Jesus Seminar, as it became called, became notorious for saying actually less than one-fifth of the words that we read about Jesus saying in the Gospels were actually spoken by Jesus. They were extraordinarily sceptical. They had this weird system about having four different coloured beads. You had a red bead, that's Jesus. You had a pink bead, that sounds like Jesus. You had a grey bead, bead, well, maybe. A black bead, well, probably there's been some mistake. That was their view. We're gonna listen to a short reading now from Matthew's Gospel that contains three of the parables that they thought, actually, that's Jesus. Parables of the treasure, parables of of the seed, the mustard seed, that's Jesus. The parable of... Sorry, the parable... Yeah, you get it right, Carter. <laughs> parable of the, the mustard seed and the leaven. That's Jesus. The parable of the treasure sounds like Jesus. But let's listen to this reading now. Four parables of Jesus. Jesus told them another story. The kingdom of heaven is like what happens when a farmer plants a mustard seed in a field. Although it is the smallest of all seeds... It grows larger than any garden plant and becomes a tree. Birds even come and nest in its branches. Jesus also said the kingdom of heaven is like what happens when a woman mixes a little yeast into three big batches of flour. Finally, all the dough rises. The kingdom of heaven is like what happens when someone finds treasure hidden in a field and buries it again. A person like that is happy and goes and sells everything in order to buy that field. And the kingdom of heaven is like what happens when a shop owner is looking for fine pearls. After finding one very valuable one, the owner goes and sells everything in order to buy that pearl. Hearing those words, we're hearing Jesus. Around this time, lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who did surprising deeds and a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. When Pilate, on hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had him condemned to be crucified, those who in the first place came to love him did not give up their affection for him. From the third day, he appeared to them restored to life. The prophets of God had prophesied this and countless other marvellous things about him. And the tribe of Christians, so called after him, have still to this day not died out. That's the testimony of the Jewish historian, Flavius Josephus, to Jesus. It is an extraordinarily positive assessment for Jesus from someone who was certainly never, ever a Christian himself, written in the first century. But that's the problem. Is it too good to be true? Did Josephus really think that Jesus was the Messiah? Did he really believe that Jesus had risen from the dead? And for that reason, it's widely accepted that actually, great as it is, Josephus probably didn't write those words. It's rather the case that some enthusiastic Christians either just inserted the passage whole into Josephus' history, or else has doctored his words to the point where they are beyond recognition. And that, of course, raises an important question for us. If some Christians were not above doing this kind of thing, how can we be sure the whole thing isn't just a massive fabrication, made-up stories about Jesus? Happily for us, Josephus does mention Jesus one other time. He relates how the high priest Ananias brought before the Sanhedrin James, the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ, who together with some others was accused of being lawbreakers and he delivered them over to be stoned. Now that sounds a bit more authentic. James, the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ. No personal commitment or allegiance to Jesus there on the part of Josephus. Some people thought he was Messiah, I'm not going there, but his brother was stoned by Ananias the high priest. Here there are no implausible plaudits for Jesus, just a somewhat sceptical reference to him as the so-called Christ, which is what you might expect from someone who had no personal allegiance to Jesus. Josephus then does give us one firm reference to Jesus in his writings. The Roman historian Tacitus also refers to Jesus, and he was even more unsympathetic. When people suspected that the Emperor Nero was himself responsible for starting a fire that destroyed much of Rome, Tacitus says that Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, broke out again, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and hateful from every part of the world find their centre and become popular. Clearly this Roman historian was no fan of Christians. Yet as a historian, he records that the Jesus movement started with someone called Christus, who was executed under Pontius Pilate. So again we have firm evidence from non-Christian sources that Jesus existed and that he was put to death. Sometimes you hear people say, well, there's nothing about Jesus that isn't in the Bible, and we don't believe the Bible, so we don't believe in Jesus. Actually, there is firm historical evidence for Jesus' life and his death. And once more, we can be pretty sure that the, the extreme penalty referred to by Tacitus was crucifixion, the most degrading and shameful form of execution known to the ancient world. You saw the graffiti of Alex worshipping his God how the figure on the cross is portrayed as an object of contempt and ridicule. And Christians were scorned for talking about a crucified Messiah. The gospel would have been a lot more palatable without the cross. The Apostle Paul talks about Jews refusing to accept a crucified Messiah and Greeks thinking the whole idea was completely stupid. But nevertheless, he remained committed to preaching the message of Christ crucified. Why? Why? He had no choice, because that's what had happened to Jesus. Jesus had died on a cross. It was part of historical fact that couldn't be airbrushed out or ignored. It was the truth about how Jesus died. The Christian apologist Talia makes this point. He says, "The Son of God was crucified. I am not ashamed, because it is shameful. The Son of God died." It is immediately believable because it's absurd. He was buried and rose again. It is certain because it is impossible. Paradoxical remarks. What's he saying here? He's saying that the apparently shameful, unbelievable and impossible parts of the Christian gospel are the essential bits. You strip these out, you've nothing left to believe in. If you're going to accept the gospel... You've got to accept it all. The Son of God, dying on a cross, being buried, rising again. Incredible things, things that are hard to accept. But they are the bedrock of the Christian gospel. If you try and leave out the difficult bits, you'll be left with nothing. So he boldly says, I'm not ashamed because it's shameful. The Son of God died, I believe it because it's absurd. He rose again, it's certain because it's impossible. These are things... Incredible as they seem, that are essential to the gospel. That Christians believe because they've encountered Jesus for themselves. In the 19th century, liberal scholars rewrote the life of Jesus, trying to leave out and explain away all the miraculous bits and the bits that people find hard to accept. The problem was, they should have listened to Tertullian, really. By the time they'd finished, all you were left with was such a nice, harmless man. A figure so insignificant, unfascinating and unintriguing, that it's difficult to see how anybody would have believed in him or followed him. Difficult to see how he could have made such a a huge impression on anyone at all. The figure that they portrayed wouldn't have got people to follow him in such large numbers. He wouldn't have disconcerted the authorities so much that they needed to do away with him. He wouldn't have inspired millions to follow him over a period of 2,000 years. In trying to make Jesus more believable, 19th century liberal scholarship ended up making people's response to Jesus incredible. There had to be something hugely significant, hugely radical about Jesus for him to make the impact that he did. Something about him that arrested people's attention. Despite their reservations, they thought, this is the truth. This is the Messiah. This is the man we need to follow. This is the man we are prepared to to believe in, even to the point of being ridiculed and called stupid and laying down our lives for. Only a totally radical, controversial figure would have made that impact. It is big, thorough and good book. Jimmy Dunn makes the point, Jesus remembered. He says, the idea that we can see through the faith perspective of the New Testament writings To a Jesus who did not inspire faith, or who inspired faith in a different way, is an illusion. There is no such Jesus. That there was a Jesus who did inspire the faith, which in due course found expression in the Gospels, is not in question. But that we can somehow hope to strip out the theological impact which he actually made on his disciples. To uncover a different Jesus, the real Jesus, is at best fanciful. It's not simply that we reach Jesus only through the picture his disciples made of him. It's also that the only Jesus we reach through that picture is the Jesus who inspired that picture. In other words, the Gospels are the best testimony you've got to Jesus because they show the man who inspired the people to write the Gospels about him. And there is no other real Jesus All the other kinds of Jesus that people talk about, they are fabrications, they are reconstructions, they are secondary pictures of Jesus that try and get behind the Gospels and people end up making Jesus in their own image, one that they are comfortable with. But the picture we have to go with actually is the one that we find in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. What we find in those narratives may not be Jesus himself, but it is the Jesus that the disciples remembered, the Jesus the disciples perceived. The Jesus who inspired faith and trust, who challenged them, who inspired them to recount the memories they had of him, memories that formed the bedrock of the Gospels we know as Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Those four Gospels, Mark, is probably the earliest. And there's an ancient tradition that Mark was Peter's interpreter. Mark wrote down as much as Peter told of the sayings and deeds of Christ, accurately but not in order, says. 60 or 70 years after the time of Jesus, a Christian called Papias claimed to have heard this from the elder John, who was one of Jesus' original disciples. And Papius said he made a point of searching out people who had known Jesus for themselves and hearing what they had to say. And John told him that Mark's Gospel was based on Peter's recollections of Jesus. The claim can't be verified, but it's eminently plausible. You read bits of Mark's Gospel and it sounds like it's written by someone who was there, seeing it for themselves. Papiers also claim that Matthew compiled the sayings of the Lord in the Hebrew language, and other people translated them as best they could. And intriguingly, there does seem to be a collection of Jesus' sayings that's common to the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And it may be that Matthew, one of Jesus' original disciples, was the one who jotted these sayings down, and they found their way into the Gospel by his name. In that saying source, we find Jesus claiming that through his preaching of the kingdom, The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Big claims to make about what you're doing, but we find those words on the lips of Jesus. He also goes on to claim a particular relationship with God as his father, as he says, All things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's another pretty controversial claim to make. The kind of things that Jesus said that disturbed and unsettled people, but meant that he made the impact that he did. So for his part, Matthew is in no doubt that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Mark sees Jesus as the Son of God, whose identity is verified as he does the kind of things that only God has the power and authority to do, including forgiving people's sins. Luke didn't know Jesus personally, but we've heard earlier his claim to have done thorough research before writing his own account of Jesus' ministry. And he is in no doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. The fourth Gospel, John, claims to contain eyewitness testimony of Jesus' crucifixion. He records how one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear to make sure he was really dead. And he says he saw a mixture of blood and water coming from Jesus' side. He who saw it has borne witness, he says. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth. And he testifies so that you also may believe. Eyewitness account of Jesus dying. And John ends his gospel by saying, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are, not written, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Four different authors, all sharing their own or other people's memories of Jesus, each with their own perspective and understanding on Jesus' mission, but all agreed that somehow, In Jesus, God was powerfully and uniquely present. And when people met Jesus, they met God. And when they met God, their lives were turned around. This is the Jesus that we find in the gospel. This is the Jesus who made such an impact on people. There is no other, because only this Jesus could make the impact that the Jesus that we read about did. We can be sure that Jesus preached about the kingdom of God because even the Jesus Seminar believed that. God breaking into people's lives with sovereign power, bringing healing, forgiveness, freedom, life, hope. We read about these things in the Gospels. The kingdom of God was a dynamic, powerful, life-changing message which made a huge impact on people's lives and whole communities. For those who embraced Jesus' message, nothing was ever the same again. They had found the treasure buried in the field. They discovered the pearl of great price. And once they'd done that, nothing mattered more to them than following this figure, Jesus, who had transformed their lives. Having Jesus, that was the most important thing for them. And the power of the kingdom was unstoppable. Even nailing Jesus to a cross didn't hinder its growth, but the seed, the mustard seed, kept on growing. The dough kept on rising as more and more people found that believing the message of Jesus made a real difference in their lives. Space of 300 years, it grows to become a tiny, insignificant splinter group in a backwater of Israel, to becoming the the world religion at the time. People following Jesus. The message of the kingdom is as real as the man who proclaimed it. And it still changes lives today. The story of Jesus is not a fairy tale. Or a children's story. Or even adult fiction. It is the account of God coming to us in the person of his son. God coming to you with the life-changing message of the kingdom of God. One of the sayings attributed to Jesus is that whoever does not receive the kingdom like a little child will never enter it. Again, it's one of those unsettling things, he said, that gets under your skin a bit when you think about it. It's tough because receiving the kingdom like a child entails setting aside all our intellectual pride, pride, all those securities we use to define and defend ourselves, it involves becoming vulnerable. And that's why sometimes it feels a lot safer just to keep Jesus at a safe distance by telling yourself, oh, he's not real. I can just ignore him. But actually, he is real. And if you're listening to this sermon, either this morning or on podcast later, then in listening to this sermon, the kingdom of God has come near to you question is will you change your mind turn around and believe the good news it's what jesus called people to do then it's what he still calls people to to do today and it's a life-changing message because the man who proclaimed it is real that's why he matters